Coles James, after many years, first as a scholar at the Heritage Foundation and then later as a trustee, you took over the reins in December of 2017, almost two years now. What are your primary goals when you took the position? Hmm. Well, I've been given very specific instructions by our board, um, and um, they were very interested in settling the organization down, uh, making sure that it had world-class management, as well as um, taking the very important messages that we have from the Heritage Foundation to new audiences. Um, Largely, we had been focused on Washington, D.C., and speaking to legislators and people within the administration. But we really felt like our conservative message uh, needed a voice within some demographics that we hadn't been particularly active in. We needed to talk to women. We needed to talk to minorities. We needed to talk to the youth of this country. Our conservative values are so important uh, that we cannot ignore those constituencies with our message. We've got to win them. It's interesting because on your website you talk about the fact that 70 percent of your funding, which is about how much, and what's your revenue this year, $90 million or so? Yeah, you can stay in that range okay. and you'd be safe. All right, so about 70 percent of that comes from almost half a million, 500,000 individuals. Yeah. So it sounds like you're getting out of Washington. What's well, we are, uh, but we, we need to do even more. Um, I think one of the strengths of the Heritage Foundation uh, is that we are not associated with a university, so we don't have, you know, that sort of, of, of pressure from the, uh, the sort of established university uh, to push us in one direction or another. Um, we receive our donations from a wide swath of the American people, so we can largely be independent. We're not looking to any one major donor to please. Uh, we want to be known for our scholarship, for our research, for our data, uh, our analysis. And so for that reason, I think uh, it puts us in a very unique position to have that many people who are supporting the Heritage Foundation. How large is the staff and how many scholars? Ah, uh, north of 100 scholars. And these are some of the most um, incredible, incredible scholars, the research. Sometimes when I sit in meetings at the Heritage Foundation and I listen to, and it's largely a very young uh, staff as well, to see these young people, I tell them they're scary smart uh, as they uh, put the time and the energy and the effort in. And the staff is uh, somewhere around 300. We go up and down depending. Uh, so uh, it's a large organization uh, with a large mission. Um, with a lot to do in these days. Well, it, for out our history, it has been one of a number of think tanks along the ideological spectrum that we've covered regularly, which is why we wanted to introduce oh. people to you and your role. Uh, you talk about, and the materials talk about, a set of principles called True North. Mm. What, what are they? Hmm. Well, you know, there's a lot of discussion within the conservative movement about what is a real conservative. The other thing that I noticed, having been in the position for a little bit, is that I would get telephone calls, not from people on the other side of the ideological spectrum, but very often from my own friends, people that I admire, respect, and have known for years, that says, I know this may go against what your scholars are saying or your research is telling you or the data is saying, but this is such a good program. Could you let it could you let it slide? Would you not oppose this? Because it would do so much good. 
And I finally came to the conclusion that I needed a document that said, here are the principles upon which we stand. If you're going to call me and ask me to violate one of those principles, then I can save you a phone call because it's just not going to happen. And so the True North principles are those things that we laid out that we think sort of shapes what a true conservative is. And it would not be anything surprising. It would not be anything very complex. Of course, we believe in limited government. Of course, we believe in a strong national defense. Of course, we believe in the value, dignity, and sanctity of human life. Of course, we believe that we need to bring our debt under control. Of course, we believe in strong families and religious liberty. So if anything you may ask us to do that would violate one of those principles, the answer is pretty much going to be no. Well, on the budget, uh, I'm wondering, because it has been a, 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 a strong position of heritage throughout its its existence, uh, but we learned last week from the Congressional Budget Office that the federal deficit next year is going to be close to a trillion dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, the public seems not to be um, expressing concern in the polls. Well, we are. What's, what, what do you <laughs> think is happening? We are at the Heritage Foundation. Um, we are very concerned about the debt that we're leaving for generations ahead to pay. Uh, one of the nice things, and I want to make this distinction very early in our conversation, because a lot of people just never, ever get it. We are not an arm of either the Republican Party or the Trump administration. This is a conservative public policy think tank. And what that means by definition is when we see policy that we don't agree with, we call it. We call it out. And we do. And so, yes, we did in working with you know, the president. We are so grateful for so much of what he's done. But when we disagree, we don't hesitate to say so. What do you think is um, happening in this town that the, that the public debt continues to rise at the rate that it does? Because I think our politicians on both sides of the aisle kick the can, <laughs> kick it down the road, leave it for future generations to deal with, and uh, sometimes just don't have the political will to do the right thing. And it takes a, a real amount of courage uh, in order to do that. So the least we can do at the Heritage Foundation is hold their feet to the fire. So when um, speaking out about the policies you agree and disagree with, let me just ask you in, in general, almost three years into it now, you served in the Trump uh, transition. Uh, I'm wondering how you think, as someone who served under two earlier presidents, this president is doing and his leadership skills and policy issues so far. Interesting question, and it's a very complex one, because you don't have to like the president's personality. You don't like have to like his choice of words. You don't even have to like him. But I can tell you that from a policy perspective, in terms of pure conservative policy, uh, he's actually done quite well. Uh, the Heritage Foundation puts out a mandate for leadership uh, where we list what conservative policy would look like under any administration. And um, in his first few years in office, he has already completed 64% of our mandate for leadership. So take issue with him wherever you like in terms of personality, style, any of that. But if you want to look at uh, some good, solid uh, uh, conservative policy that has been implemented, 
Uh, we are pleased when we look around this administration. Everybody is focused on the top of the, the pyramid, focused on the president. But when you look around this administration at some of the uh, various levels in government, there are true patriots who've gone in to actually serve in government. And the sustaining work of government is going on. And uh, we're very pleased about what we see coming out of this administration for the most part. What about uh, the Heritage Action, political arm of the Heritage Foundation? What is your relationship? What can the two organizations do together and what can they not? Well, we are two separate organizations. Um, they are, um, you know, we like to think of them in terms of someone who really is out there putting teeth behind the policy that we, we, we promote at the Heritage Foundation. So just legally, they are allowed to do some things in terms of lobbying and with particular pieces of legislation that we just don't do. So at the Heritage Foundation, uh, we do the research, the data analysis, the... the uh, the uh, collection of data, and uh, at the Heritage Action for America, they're the ones who take that information, and when it is implemented into a particular piece of legislation, they can actually go lobby for that legislation. We don't. Is it unusual for the major think tanks in Washington to have a political organization? Not as unusual as you might think. Um, lots of them have C3s, C4s, and very complex systems for how they, they work in this town. Uh, we're very upfront about it. It's the Heritage Foundation and the Heritage Action. So since you've uh, taken over the helm, you've been in the public eye um, over a couple of different issues, and I wanted to get your perspective on some <laughs> of them. First of all is the debate over Baltimore. We're talking about ah. the president and his, mm -hmm. his tweets. Uh, you spoke out during the uh, controversy that arose after his criticism of Baltimore for its issues and its handling of race-related and crime-related issues. Why did you get involved in that? Because I care. Because I care deeply about urban areas, um, I, I came from one. Um, the reason that I am a conservative today is because I genuinely, honestly believe that the policies that we promote are the policies that will save those lives, that will change those lives in those urban areas, that will promote human flourishing. Um, I'm not a conservative for ideological reasons. Uh, by the way, my definition of a conservative is someone who has the audacity to believe what their grandmother taught them. It's not deep. It's not complicated. It's not even weird. And so I think about the things that had a profound influence on my life. And I look at the conditions in those cities today, whether it's Baltimore, Detroit, or my own hometown, Richmond, Virginia, and my heart breaks, literally breaks. And so I believe that we as conservatives have a compelling message for those areas, but we just haven't done a good job uh, in telling it. And I think that uh, the far, far left has a compelling interest in painting us uh, as uncaring, hateful, racist people who genuinely could give a hoot about urban areas. I, on the other hand, absolutely believe that if we restore to those areas some of the very basic principles that we know work, we could change people's lives. And so that's why I spoke to it. In one of the uh, written pieces that you uh, published around the time of the Baltimore controversy, you talked about a family tragedy, yeah. your niece's death. Could you tell that story? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I hope I can get through it without tears. Um, had a niece that I loved dearly, 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 beyond all measure, and uh, saw her become a victim of so much of what goes on in our urban areas today. Saw this young, bright kid who was a superstar in my eyes uh, succumb to the urban culture and environment, uh, become addicted to opioids, and eventually die of, a, of an overdose. And I literally was sitting in her funeral, and I was looking around, and I was seeing my family members weeping. I heard the preacher and other speakers talking about, you know, enough is enough, and we've got to change things in our communities. And it was at that moment I said, I, I really wanted to stand up and say, are you mad enough yet? Are you angry enough yet to try something different? Because the definition of insanity is to keep trying the same things over and over again and not getting a different result. So are you ready to listen? Are you ready to, to sit down at a table with anyone who brings solutions, who brings answers, who wants a change? Would you be willing to say, let's look at the institutions within our, our community that got us this far? So should we look at the church and see the role that the church has always played in the black community and say, we want to do things that strengthen the church and religious liberty and not do things that weaken them? Are we willing to recognize the role of quality education and get mad enough that we say no more failure factories in these schools? We want schools that really do teach kids and prepare them for life. Are we, are we mad enough yet to, to say living in, in these conditions are not acceptable, so if nobody is going to come clean them up, damn it, we're going to get out there and we're going to clean them up ourselves. In other words, what can we do today in case the Calvary never shows up, in case the government programs never show up? Now, that's not to diminish in any way the need, the desperate need for some of those programs. But I was also very intrigued by how we as a people survived in a post-Civil War era during Reconstruction. And I figured out that if we survived slavery and the Civil War, and we were left basically in the South especially, not just with no government programs, but an antagonistic government. How do we survive that and produce the Harlem Renaissance, Black Wall Street, historically black colleges and universities? Because we did that with no help. And I am so intrigued by the strength and the dignity of my people and my community that I want to let them know, I don't care if they never show up with a government program, we got this, we can do this. And I think that kind of hope and inspiration has been lost. And people are in despair and discouraged. So I got involved because I wanted to, to sort of reignite that sense of hope and optimism. And yes, we need those, desperate, those desperately needed government programs, but if they don't show up, I'm not gonna sit here and wait. There are things we can do today. How old was your niece when she passed? 
She was in her early 20s. Um, and, and is there a series of programs you think that would have made a difference? In, in her, her life? Mm-hmm. You Sounds know, like she had a good family. And, and oh, yeah. She, she absolutely had a good family network and support. Um, uh, but sometimes those streets can be so overwhelming. It doesn't matter what kind of family you come from. They can overtake you. Um, we need to run the drug dealers out of our communities. We need to say no more, no more. Uh, you can't peddle this stuff. Um, I happen to believe, as someone who is staunchly pro-life, that, that, that being pro-life is something far more than just being against an abortion procedure. For me, being pro-life means recognizing the value, the dignity, and the sanctity of human life and that's to be protected at all stages of human life. So you cannot be a drug dealer pushing poison on other human beings and recognize the value and dignity and sanctity of human life. I think we need to return to a culture where we believe in the dignity of life. I think it will influence everything from not just abortion, it will influence how we treat our neighbors, it will influence the dignity that you give to the toll booth collector as you're going through, and it will have a culture that says we don't push poison on each other. Another time you've recently been in the news is over uh, an appointment to a now defunct panel at Google. (laughs) Here's a clip from local news, uh, Fox News, actually, where you talked about the experience. Let's watch. They blame those of us on the right. But I said, you know, I just want the people in Silicon Valley and people on the far, far left to live up to their own bumper stickers. They're the ones that said mean people suck. I've never seen anything meaner, uh, nastier, more vile than the hatred that came towards me uh, during that particular time. And I was a little disappointed in the Google leadership who really thought they were doing the right thing uh, to disband. I really think they should have stood up to the mob rule. And uh, and it was not a good thing to capitulate to, to that sort of thinking. A clip from Fox News nationally. So what happened at Google? So sad. So terribly sad. First of all, I think it was a complete misunderstanding by the employees. They were not asking me to come in and give advice uh, on uh, uh, what direction they ought to go or to judge a particular product. I thought what they were doing was a very good business decision. They put together a diverse group of individuals who had uh, different perspectives to say, um, we want to know, we're, we're considering these options and we want to stress test them with people. What would people who think like you think about this? And I thought that was a very interesting question to ask and something that any good business would want to know. But what I really saw was a missed opportunity. I, I am so distressed at the tone of the debate, not just over Google. I mean, just this weekend, I had one of my all-time favorite movie stars. I, I watch Beaches and Cry on a regular basis. I love Bette Midler. But I did a short piece on the death of David Koch who was a philanthropist, and you would think, you would think 
that in our nation today, you could in death say, you know, life well lived, you, you know, did this for the arts and you did this, and that would be okay. And I had to wake up to Bette Midler saying, F.K. James. What are, what are, what are we doing? If, if we as a nation cannot demonstrate to the world what it looks like to live in a pluralistic society with people who have a broad range of views and can have those discussions and do it in a civil way, then I don't think we can say anything to the Sunnis and the Shias. I mean, we have got to figure out how to do civil discourse in this country. And, um, and I think that the employees at Google need to learn that. Dear God, they call me a white racist. They just assume. They didn't even do their research to figure out who Kay James is. Um, and that's sad. So I want to do my part. I don't want to engage in that kind of debate or that kind of rhetoric. Um, and I do believe that you can have deeply held, fundamentally different beliefs and respect individuals who have a differing perspective and engage in civil discourse. Third issue is actually over the leadership of heritage. Mm -hmm. You made reference to the fact that the board asked you to stabilize it. Uh, it was really back in the news after two years uh, recently with uh, Tim Alberta of Politico's book, American Carnage, where he wrote a few pages about uh, the change in leadership there with former Senator Jim DeMint. What do you want the people who uh, out in the country who follow heritage and think tanks mm -hmm. to know about that leadership change and what was behind it? That they should totally ignore everything that was in that book. <laughs> You know, I just refuse to participate in that. Jim DeMent and I talked after that, and we agreed that we together were not going to give it any credence. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Jim DeMent was, is, and will always be a personal hero of mine. I have great admiration and respect for him, and I refuse to let someone try to uh, tarnish that relationship in order to sell some books. What about Heritage's management needed stabilization? Well, you know, I come from a business background, and uh, I love Heritage. And so one of the things that I promised to the board as I took over that I would bring some things that would make any one of our donors feel secure about um, a donation that they make to Heritage that we're here for the long haul. So I did any, I did the things that any good manager would do coming in. Uh, we went through a strategic planning process so that I can say to our donors, we know where we're going and what we want to do in B uh, three years out. Uh, we are doing succession planning so that we know for every key position in the Heritage Foundation, whether it's the president or one of our top policy experts, we know that uh, we have um, uh, a succession plan in place. I am a conservative by nature, and so I do conservative budgeting. So we revamped the budgeting process, and everything was on the chopping block. You have to make sure that the things that we are doing are the things that are, are contributing to our long-term strategic plan. So bringing some of those business visions to Heritage to make sure that it is a strong, stable organization. 
You brought to Heritage uh, more than 35 years in policy, in government, higher education, um, and it all began in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, we dipped mm -hmm. into our video library uh, to find some clips from you in the past. We've got 31 years, actually. Oh, my. Oh <laughs> but my. This, one, this one is from 1990. Uh, let's show it. It's when you were serving on a commission on children and family. Let's watch. Mm. Another thought that I had when we were talking about uh, uh, wishing back the neighborhoods and the importance of the, of, of the way it was, um, I also felt a profound sense of unease as we talked about that because Lord knows I don't want my neighborhood back. Um, the neighborhood that I came out of was a public housing project and it, from a dysfunctional family, and there's nothing there to be glorified or to go back to. You uh, told that story in a biography called Never Forget, uh, the, the subtitle, Riveting Story of One Woman's Journey, excuse me, from public housing to the corridors of power. You talk often about your biography when you're speaking to audiences. Um, tell me a, a capsule version of what you went through and how it shaped who you are today. Mm -hmm. Welfare mother, alcoholic father, born on a kitchen table, Portsmouth, Virginia, um, and I think that my story is not unique at all. It is a quintessentially American story that, that defies race um, because I have friends, you know, who are black, who are white, who are Latino, who all share this story. This story which I think makes us all love this country so much. Coming out of that, what 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 happened? How how did you make the the journey from that to where we are today? Well, the first of all was a was a family that pulled together. Um, my mom had six kids. Her sisters divided the kids up and helped her. So that was the first Department of Health and Human Resources was the family. Where was your father? Largely absent. My father suffered under the debilitating disease of alcoholism, and I think because of that. Um, he had so many hopes and dreams that were dashed. Um, I, as an adult, understand a little bit better what may have caused him to desert his family the way he did, um, not to excuse it, but to understand it a little better. Um, so the family pulled together. I went to live with an aunt and uncle who had a very middle-class background. Didn't need the United Negro College Fund to tell me a mine was a terrible thing to waste. That was sort of a mantra in our family. So education was key. It was critical. Uh, that was the ticket out. Um, I was a part of the, the uh, class of students that helped to integrate the schools in the South, so went through all of that. Having come out of that, I wanted the peace and the comfort and the security of going to a historically black college and university and had the privilege of being educated at Hampton University in Hampton, Virginia, and uh, went there and felt that security, felt that warmth, felt that love. Uh, I'm a big advocate of HBCUs for that reason. I understand the role that they can play. Every kid doesn't need it. I did. Um, Coming out of that uh, experience, my, my uncle who was raising me said, you can get married the day after college, but not one day before. You will get educated. You will get the tools you need for life. Um, can I interrupt you? Oh, any, yes. Any of your brothers go to college? Um, no. No. I was the only one who had that 
opportunity. And is that um, because of your aunt and uncle? Is yes, that? yes. Um, they, along, um, one or two of them may have had some college courses, but none ever uh, actually were able to complete them. And boy, did they succeed in spite of that. And I, I oh my gosh, my mother is my hero. Um, and I wish that every urban mother could know the tenacity, could know what putting your kids' uh, education uh, in, as a key to their survival, with, who, who would know what it means to your kid to say, you know, we may be poor, but we'll never be dirty, uh, who says good manners will get you places that open doors for you that others uh, will never have opened. So my mother poured all of that stuff into me. The other person, the other mother that I admire like that, of course, is Ben Carson's mother, when you hear his story. And I think my story and Ben Carson's story are largely irrelevant. I want somebody to tell their stories, because I think it would be an encouragement to the mothers who live in those neighborhoods. When along that path did you decide you were a conservative, and were you a conservative at Hampton? Uh, I've always been a conservative. I just didn't know I was. And I didn't know I was a conservative until a reporter told me I was. Absolutely true story. I was in Pennsylvania. I had just done a speech, and the reporter said something to me about being a conservative. I went, oh, dear God, no, I'm not one of those. What, make, what would make you say that? And he went through the list of what, because my view of a conservative was an old, angry, white male who may have had some racist tendencies, and, and I wanted nothing to do with that. That's not who I was. And that's not who conservatives are either, by the way, but that's the picture that had been painted. And when he began to describe the things that conservatives believe, it was like, I guess I am. And so there was no conversion where I wasn't a conservative and then I was. And I absolutely believe that a great many people in this country share conservative values, but they don't want to carry that moniker because of how it has been defined today. No one wants to be defined as racist. No one wants to be defined as angry and bitter. Uh, no one wants to be defined as lacking in compassion. So I think we have to, to show a different face of who a conservative is and let people know that you share our values, you are a conservative. Conservative values work. I, I tell Bernie Sanders voters all the time, I defy you to say you care more about poor people than I do, because you don't. I defy you to say you care more about access to health care than I do, because you don't. I defy you to say you care more about educating poor kids than I do, because you don't. But we have very different solutions about how to get there. So could we just agree to be solutionists, people who want to solve problems? And if your ideas don't work, do we have to keep doing them over and over again? Can we really just do things that work and that will contribute to human flourishing? What uh, was your pathway from Hampton? And by the way, were you involved in politics at all as a college student? I am so non-political. Nope. Yes, no. It was the I Vietnam wasn't. War era. You were not involved. No, nope. no. Nope. Nope. So, how, what was your pathway from Hampton into the national policy arena? Well, it was so interesting. Um, a friend came to our home once and said, "You know, 
we shouldn't be just wagging our face fingers in the faces of women and saying, you know, our church teaches we sh- you shouldn't have an abortion. We should do some very practical things to say, if you choose life, we will walk beside you. We will help you. And so my husband and I were involved in starting a uh, pro-life uh, uh, center to help women. And um, I was asked to come on television to debate the abortion issue very early on uh, here in Washington on a new cable uh, network at the time called BET. And I can tell you, that's the last thing I wanted to do. Uh, The most controversial thing I'd ever been involved in debating was standing in front of the television and debating chicken or hamburger for dinner. That was about it. So stepping into that was frightening to me. Um, But I did. I did because I believe that as a nation, dear God, can we solve the pathologies that exist in our country without throwing our preborn children in trash cans? To me, it was the greatest civil rights issue of our time because a member of the human family was being discriminated against because of size, age, and place of residence. I consider myself a feminist, and I bear that title gladly. And I was so annoyed that our current modern feminist movement defined me out of the movement by saying, if I believed in protecting human life, that I could not then therefore be a feminist. But for me and my perspective, I don't have to reach inside my body and take the lives of pre, my preborn children to be equal to any man. I, don't, I, I really believe that the culture has to adjust to me and who I am as a woman, and I believe that's real feminism. Our next clip actually comes from that step in your career. It's the <laughs> earliest one we have of you in our video library, 1988, 30, wow. uh, 39 years old at the time, speaking to the Right to Life Convention. Let's watch. What would our world look like if the pro-life movement packed up and decided to go home? What would it look like? What will the world look like? What will our country look like if we don't win? And I think the implications of that are scary. What are the implications for handicapped people in our country if we don't win? What are the implications for the elderly in our country if we don't win? What are the implications for the millions of unborn children in this country if we don't win? So a couple of questions out of that, um, and you referenced this earlier in your own philosophy. Uh, you, you are there talking about a broad definition of life, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I'm wondering how well you think as a whole the Right to Life movement has done in adapting that broader definition so that it crosses policy issues across society. We try. We try. I cannot tell you the number of times that I wanted to have a discussion about the broader issues of what it means to have a high regard for the value and the dignity and the sanctity of human life and how it would affect public policy. But the interviewer would take me right back to talking about abortion. 
And I can't tell you how many times we have tried to explain to the American people that in 1973, something happened to the soul of this nation that has far greater implications than just, you know, dealing with a, a, a medical procedure called abortion. And um, it's hard. It's hard. And I think because the feminist movement in our country has focused so much on the abortion issue that they recognize they've got to kill the whole thing in order to win that battle. Um, they cannot allow us to prevail on the broader set of issues. Uh, anytime I have the opportunity, I want to talk about that and talk about the implications of what that means, but we rarely get the opportunity to do that. What's a, for instance, what's one issue that you think ought to be discussed more in this context? Oh, my word. I mean, just think about what Governor Northam said in, in, in Virginia about a child being able to be born, and they set the child aside while the mother and the doctor determine whether or not to kill it. That's barbaric. That's awful. Is that who we've become as a people? I want to say to that child, if you have a disability, you're welcome in my world. I don't care. And, and we will wrap the social services around you. There are people standing ready to adopt you. And I think it has a profound influence. But we can't get to that discussion. I don't think old people have a duty to die. And so... I think that we should, as other cultures have today and as we have in the past, revere the aging in our country. You know, the, the implications of being pro-life are far greater than just that procedure. On abortion, particularly, 31 years later, it's still the law of the land. You argue in that clip for the long game, for conservatives mm -hmm. or uh, playing the long game. So are you? do you feel that we're at an inflection point right now with a 5-4 Supreme Court? Uh, with, will there be a revisiting? Will, do you foresee the law being overturned? You know, I, I don't focus on the Supreme Court as much as I focus on where we are with the cultural change. More and more young people are recognizing that they don't adopt a pro-abortion uh, philosophy or stance. I think that what's more rewarding to me is to win the cultural debate rather than just winning the Supreme Court debate. Because the reality is that can shift back and forth depending on who the judges are and what that means. I want to see our country say... Um, that we welcome, we revere life, we, 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 we will not solve the problems in our country by, by killing our children. Uh, I want to see us say uh, to those individuals in our country who may be handicapped or disabled or, or, or old or um, that you're welcome in our world. In that uh, event, you, uh, we didn't have time to show it, but you introduced three at the time pretty small children. Uh, yours. Oh, did I? Yeah, yes. Uh, what happened to them? You had they had two parents involved in the policy community. Did any of them go in that direction? Well, in their lives? actually, they did. Um, I have uh, one who was chief deputy attorney general in the state of Virginia, and who is a practicing attorney now, and 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 just remarkable. 
Uh, I have a, a daughter who was um, who was involved in government and politics for a while, but is now a full-time stay-at-home mom raising three children of her own. And then I have a younger son who is one of the most complex individuals you will ever see in your life. Um, he, uh, he, at some points, uh, is as conservative as I, and at another point is leading the resist movement here in Washington. I mean, he's all over the place, but, boy, smart as a whip and keeps me in check. Next stop is uh, Bush 41 administration, where you worked under the HHS Secretary Sullivan. Uh, let's show you a clip from that period, and we'll come back and talk about it. Well, you see, someone was debating this issue with me the other day, and they said, you know, well, what about the fact that there may be low unemployment in a portion of the state, and the circumstances are, are that there are no jobs there? And I said, well, what are you telling me? Well, then I think the states should support them. I said, can we just end this conversation right here by saying I'm a capitalist, you're a socialist? <laughs> Because you see, what you're saying to me is, now mind you, we're only talking about able-bodied people. That if you're able-bodied and of sound mind and can't find a job in three years, you still want me to take care of you. I don't think so. Oh, my I word. Need, okay, I need, I need can to... we just talk about the glasses and the hair for a minute? <laughs> that's, my that's, word. That, that's the downside of all these years in the library, I can promise, from my own experience. Yes. But actually, I, I have to go back and reintroduce this. This is actually a bit later, after you left government and went to work for the governor of Virginia as secretary yourself of Health and Human Resources. Mm. Now, I was interested in that clip for a couple of reasons. Okay. First of all, right now, again, we're, we're hearing the word socialist being mm -hmm. bandied about in our political debate. Um, what does that distinctions, socialist versus capitalist, mean to you? Sure. Well, you know, as I think about the people that I care about and the lives that I want to change and the improvements that I want to see in human flourishing, the form of the economic system where that happens the best anywhere on the planet is under a capitalist system. Socialism has never, ever worked anywhere. And when you look at how people are suffering now all over the world under these socialist regimes, I didn't realize how prophetic I was actually being in that clip right then. I just think it's important for us to recognize what works, what doesn't, and be bold enough to say, uh, we're going to go with where the research data and analysis takes us. Question, though, you talked about three years for government programs, and then people should they should be able to find their way off. This happened in uh, 1994 before NAFTA went into place, which caused displacement, before the 2008 financial crisis, before the digital revolution really eliminated a number of jobs. Do you feel still the same way at three years and you've got to find your place in society, or have things changed? <laughs> things have changed dramatically for the good. When you look at the economy that we're operating in today, if you can't find a job in this environment, one of the things, I mean, black unemployment, unemployment in any category today is better than it's ever been. Better than, let that sink in for a minute. And so even with all of what you listed, we're better off today than we ever have been economically as a country. 
And so, yes, maybe it shouldn't be three years, maybe it should be less. But at the end of the day, we as Americans are some of the most compassionate people, caring people. We want to be there and help. If we have a neighbor in trouble, we show up. That's who we are. But if you are able-bodied, can work, and just simply say, either that's okay, I'll just take my government check every month, or I don't want to work, makes no sense to me. Uh, there are too many people out there who genuinely need our programs. And see, that's one of the things that people often misinterpret about those of us who are conservatives. One of the reasons I want to reform entitlement programs is because if we don't if we don't restructure them, they will fall under their own weight, and the very people who need them, those programs won't be there for. So I think we are we we must look at uh, reforming our entitlement programs and how we administer them, so that they will be there for the people who desperately need them. 1999, you left government and went to Regent University to serve as a dean. Our next clip is from when you were in that period of your life, but not in that capacity. Or in this case, you're serving on a government com commission on uh, gambling, I believe oh. it is. Yeah, let's watch. And I think that this commission, and indeed the commissioners themselves, have advanced before the American people something far more important than just a document, just a report, as important as it is. I don't think that it should be overlooked that their contribution to the American public policy process has been to demonstrate to those who sometimes in this town seem incapable of doing it what it looks like when people of character and goodwill and integrity come together determined to stay at the table and do some good for the American public. So back mm. in 1999, you were talking about the ability to work together. It seems like it's only gotten worse oh, since gosh. then. Um, so what's happening, do you think, that people can't come to the table and work out solutions? That was one of the biggest challenges of my life. Uh, on that commission, I had uh, uh, CEOs of cas casinos and people who were very much against gambling in any form. And from the very beginning, the press surrounding that was horrific. I mean, I'd go home and get in a fetal position and suck my finger every night. It was just that bad, but determined to stick to it. And someone said, how are you going to fix this? How are you going to solve this problem? And um, I said, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to continue to push people to have conversation. And do you know what the icebreaker was on that commission? And I think if you ask any of the commissioners what really did it, I invited them all over to my house for dinner and told them they couldn't talk about anything but their personal lives and family. Because it's harder to be that rude and that nasty and that mean when you know that someone that you're sitting across the table from is struggling with a wife who's sick or a kid who is in severe trouble. And so, you know, I think applying some of those things, and I was so, so pleased with by the time we got to the end of that commission, um, we had come together and reached consensus. 
but it required that I go spend a day walking with the president of the largest union to truly understand what he was trying to say to me as he represented the people that came to that table. So again, I think the thing that's missing today is that element. People aren't willing to get to know me and who I am and why I believe what I believe. I am doing everything I can to try to break in to um, the, and form the relationships with my counterparts on the left to say, can we just talk about this? I think, I think the problem that we have is that the margin is so narrow in terms of who has the power. The country is so close that it's a fight to the death for every vote. It's a fight to the death for every policy. Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer could know that Donald Trump is exactly right on something, but they'll never say it. They'll never give it to him. They are never going to contribute to anything that might help during an election. The same is true from the Republican side of the aisle, which is one of the reasons I'm glad I can step out of all of that and say, I'm going to tell you all what good policy is and what you ought to be doing. But I think that's why. I think because the power shift is so close that it's a, it's a death, it's a fight to the death. Uh, I have a limited amount of time, but I did want to ask because uh, you should tell us what Regent University is and also what role you think Christian universities play in this country. Hmm. Um, I think Christian universities can play a very big role in this country. Um, if you're coming out of a church background, one of the things that I was determined to bring to Regent when I was there was a large dose of realism and uh, to help kids who probably came from Christian homes, from uh, Christian uh, private schools, and then going to a Christian college to say, let me help you navigate what it's going to be like when you get out into the big RW. So I think there's a role there uh, as uh, for, for making that transition. Um, and understanding how to do it with character, with integrity, um, and uh, with success. You've uh, served on a number of these commissions over your career. Do they matter? Do they actually get things done after the reports were delivered? Some do. <clears throat> Some do. Uh, I'm serving on one right now, which I am so excited about, and that's the uh, Centennial Commission uh, celebrating women's suffrage, women getting the right to vote in this country. Um, I love that commission because it is one that is devoid of politics. Uh, one of the highest honors of my life has been to work beside uh, my, who was then my vice chair, Senator Mikulski, uh, and uh, we we just enjoy each other's company, enjoy the banter, enjoy uh, celebrating together uh, women's right to vote. My final clip is from your next stop in uh, government, which is serving in the Bush administration as the head of the Office of Personnel Management. Mm -hmm. Here you are testifying on Capitol Hill about the creation of the Homeland Security Department. Oh. And so what I would say to the federal worker who may be listening today, and I suspect quite a many from your departments are, 
uh, that there is an opportunity to join a world-class workforce, to be in an environment where they will have the opportunity to be rewarded for the work that they do, where they have a clear mission that's set before them, where they have an opportunity to defend this homeland and do significant work. I think it's a tremendous opportunity, and knowing the federal worker as I do, I am confident that they will step up to the plate to do that and do it with vigor and enthusiasm. So a couple of questions. You're a small government person. Uh, the government grew quite a lot after 9-11. Is that a good thing? No, it is not a good thing. Um, I was hoping, as we formed the Department of Homeland Security, that there would be some economies of scale where we could shrink government as a result of that. Um, one of the things we often learn about government is um, the government typically does not go in that direction. And as you look back on creating, bringing all of those departments together at that time when there was so much stress, really, in government mm -hmm. at that time, is there anything you would have done differently? I mean, did, well, looking back with this many years' experience, mm -hmm. did it all turn out the way you had anticipated? It did not. It did not. Um, you know, when we were selling the Department of Homeland Security as a great idea, uh, one which I still believe was the right thing to do, I think that I would have put more measures or, or tried to get more measures into the legislation that would force the economies of scale so that we could see government shrink instead of grow. If I could have done anything, I would have done that. One of the ways the Trump administration is looking at cutting government is eliminating the Office of Personnel Management, which you led. Is that a good idea? Now, why did you save the hardest question for last? <laughs> not quite last. Uh, not quite last. Um, they are not actually talking about eliminating the department. What they're talking about doing is dividing the apartment, the, the department and sending certain pieces of it to certain places. As long as there are certain things that stay in place, I have no objection to that. You know, I really do believe that we have merit system principles, which are so important, that makes our workforce different from anywhere else on the planet. I really do believe that veterans' preference is so important. These um, men and women fought for us overseas, and, you know, they were should be first in line for federal jobs when they get home. You know, and I could go through the list of things that I think are very important uh, that OPM does that should never, ever go away. And never forget why it was created in the first place, because of corruption, because of nepotism, because of, of uh, individuals within government using them for political patronage. And so it plays a very real role. And as long as those functions stay in place somewhere, it's okay. We have about three minutes left. I want to come full circle to what you said your mandate was, one of your mandates, which is to increase the diversity of mm. people participating in conservative thought in the country. Uh, David Wasserman is a, a guy who does house analysis. I know you know him in this town. Last week, he tweeted this statistic that 90 percent of the House GOP, 90 percent are white males, 37 percent of the House Democrats are white males. If we think of the parties as representative of the, the electorate, what's happening? Uh, with uh, attracting people of color um, mm -hmm. to the conservative philosophy sure. and politics? It's easier to attract them to the conservative philosophy than it is to attract them to uh, Republican politics, by the way. And one of the reasons it's difficult is that the other side stays up day and night painting 
Republicans as racist. You've got the New York Times saying, you know, we're going to shift our focus away from uh, Russia to race. I mean, there, there are huge organizations out there that are pushing the racist narrative on Republicans. And so you can't blame Republicans who are out actively trying to bring people in and say, please come join us. And what they hear is, but you're racist. Why would I do that? So in a, in a large measure, um, I think that the left has been very successful in painting um, conservatives and Republicans, because the two are not the same, as racist, and that's something we've got to counteract. How can you do it successfully? You have, certainly, if you don't have the New York Times, there's certainly a, a, a large number of social media, conservative talk shows, Fox News. We're all over them, all over them, and trying to get that message out. And it's growing. I can remember the time when um, we would hold a meeting of black conservatives in this country, and I'd know all six of them. <laughs> Today, um, during the Trump uh, inaugural, uh, there was an event, and I just stood back and got teary-eyed because there were over 500 black Republicans who were in that room to celebrate the inauguration. And I went, wow, I guess my work is done here. It is growing, and it can't be stopped. And as we close, what's the thing that you've done at Heritage that you think is most going to advance this cause? Being there. Being there as a black female conservative, just being who I am on a day-to-day -day basis, I think speaks volumes. And by the way, it is not within the DNA of any board member of the Heritage Foundation to have selected me for that reason. I come with all kinds of management chops and public policy skills and abilities. The fact that I'm black and female was sort of icing on the cake. Thank you for spending an hour with C-SPAN. Appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. All Q&A programs are available on our website or as a podcast at cspan.org.